Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. This silence is intentional. There, that was my talk on the Heart Sutra. Of course, in Zen, we're always supposed to say, listen to the silence, because then you really hear what is more than words. So I meant that not as a joke. Listen, here's the Heart Sutra. But nonetheless, today, I'm going to speak about the Heart Sutra in words. Uh, I thought uh, I had just done this, but when I looked back, it was about 10 years ago. Boy, uh, even though we don't believe in time, time flies. And uh, the last time I spoke about uh, the Heart Sutra was in one day. But this time, we're going to take a little more time uh, few months, it sounds like a lot, but I mean, our monthly Zazen Kai for a, a few times, we'll look at the Heart Sutra closely. Because we chant it uh, every day for some of us and at our Zazen Kai each time. And uh, we don't think about what it means, which is good. As I said last time, uh, the Heart Sutra, like all our rituals, is also something just to pour yourself into the sound and the motion and not think about here up in the head, but to feel in the, the heart, in the bones, because that is where we realize emptiness. When you pour yourself into a dance, as a ritual is, or a chant, you lose your individuality into the motion and the, the sound and the swirl of the whole thing. And this is a, a kind of experience of emptiness. You know, we go beyond being separate dancers and we become the whole beautiful motion of it all. So there is a time just to chant the Heart Sutra and not think about it. And yet the Heart Sutra actually says something. It's a work of Buddhist philosophy. Yes, we have Buddhist philosophy. Uh, it's a teaching. And when we approach the Heart Sutra as a work of Buddhist philosophy, of course, we're not supposed to get lost in the ideas of it. So we always keep the silence and the teaching and the motion where we just pour ourselves and live it all together. 
So we're going to talk about what the teaching is, but of course the point is not to just address this intellectually. The point is to realize it and feeling, feel it. It's like if I was just explaining to you what is a dance, that's not going to do anything. We have to get up and dance, you know. So the Heart Sutra, which we chant all the time, the Hanya Shingyo, and it's called in Japanese. Uh, says something. It's a teaching, a very important teaching, cherished for more than a thousand years. Uh, let's see, uh, closer to 2,000 than 1,000 years. It's mostly cherished in the Mahayana traditions, the northern traditions of Buddhism, China, Tibet, Korea, Japan, not so much in the South Asian tradition. So we'll talk about that in a second. And some people think it was actually created in China. There are scholars who argue that the earliest versions were written or, well, let's just say it made by someone in China, not from India. We're going to talk about that too, but uh, really it's not so important. And I'll give you several reasons in a bit why. But first off, what does the Heart Sutra say and why is it so precious to us? Well, it's about emptiness. And emptiness is a big deal for us Zen Buddhists. And the Heart Sutra is a lovely, short, right to the point summary of what is emptiness. And why is emptiness so precious to us? Maybe that's the number one thing I talk about at Tree Leaf and here at our Zazenkais every day. What is this emptiness? If you think it means barrenness or nothing thereness, or they used to use a void, the word void back in the late 50s to describe uh, this, the void. And we don't do that anymore because it really, the void really sounds void. Even emptiness sounds empty, like an empty tank of gas. Uh, an empty heart, an empty uh, cupboard. It sounds like there's nothing there. And it's quite the opposite. This emptiness means the emptying of our separate self-existence, which means our rediscovery of ourself as the fullness of it all. That's why it's freeing. Most folks, at least me, a lot of the time, like everybody else, and certainly years ago, when I was a pretty messed up 20-year-old, I was lost in my separate self-existence, which seemed to be in conflict with all the other separate self-existences of this world, wondering what was my separate self-existence and why did it feel so lonely and isolated and broken? And then through this practice, losing that 
separate self-existence a bit, feeling it soften, sometimes drop away. All the friction drops with it. The lack, the, the, the hole inside is filled. Nothing's lacking. So when we realize this emptiness, we actually realize that we're completely full. And I don't, you may think right now I'm completely full of baloney. That's not what I mean. I mean, we're completely with the long sought treasure in hand. So just to look ahead for a second at how this is going to work, the Heart Sutra will say things like, Nirvana is empty. And that seems to mean like, oh, what? The Buddha in India was teaching about Nirvana and he was just trying to fool us. There is no Nirvana. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you realize Nirvana when you realize that Nirvana as another separate thing is empty. And that dropping away of nirvana and samsara, this crazy world we live in, dropping that away too, is the discovery of this thing that the word nirvana so perfectly, imperfectly points to, like that. And we realize samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara, there's the flavor of maybe an early Buddhism, a little more than the Mahayana. That, and this is an Indian thing. You know, I think uh, Hinduism also has, uh, Brahmanism has this. This world is delusion. We have to get out to discover this other truth by leaving this world behind. This is uh, this world is nothing but trouble. And that's not so much the, the take, the interpretation of the Mahayana. The Mahayana is more, this world is nothing but trouble, but it's also nirvana too. Because it all drops into emptiness. I'm getting ahead of myself and we'll get back to this, but Let's get back to the Heart Sutra. So I said it was uh, probably written in China. Many scholars think they debate about this. Did it come from India? Did it come from China? And I say it really doesn't matter. Why? For a couple of reasons. Number one is... Um, even if the Heart Sutra, which is kind of a, a summary, the heart means it's the heart of the perfection of wisdom teachings. And the perfection of wisdom teachings are the teachings that really emphasize this emptiness. And that samsara, this crazy world, is emptiness. And emptiness is samsara. Those teachings are kind of summarized in a nutshell, in one page, 
in the Heart Sutra. That's what it's the heart of, the heart of the perfection of wisdom. The perfection of wisdom is this teaching about emptiness and how emptiness and samsara are not apart, not different, different two faces of one thing like that, something like that. So was the Heart Sutra created in China? Maybe because it's supposed to be a, a translation by some of the early translators, but there's a feeling that maybe one of the early translators actually wrote it and said it was a translation. And there are Sanskrit versions that purport to come from India of this, but some scholars say that there are certain signs, the way they used words, the way it's phrased, that it's more Chinese than it is in its way of expression than Indian. So the, the Sanskrit versions may have gone back actually the other direction. First, the fellow wrote it in Chinese and then went back and it was translated into Sanskrit. Okay, but it doesn't matter for two reasons. The first is, it is a summary of these perfection of wisdom sutras that did exist in India. So even though it is like a clip, 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 take it out, it, the, the words of the Heart Sutra actually exist in these much longer sutras. And when I say much longer, some of them are really long. You think, why would some people spend so much time talking about something that is basically beyond words. But we have all these sutras, the Diamond Sutra and the different Prajnaparamita Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. And it seems that they competed for how long they could. One is the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 10,000 characters. The other one is the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 20,000 characters. Then it goes on, okay, we're going to have a Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 200,000 characters. These things are long, and they're just talking about emptiness. Why? Well, I got a theory about that. My theory is that, you know, if you're a monk, they don't have Netflix back then. You got a lot of time on your hands. You're thinking about emptiness. You want to write something down, and you start writing. And you start writing, and you write a little more. And you keep writing. I had this experience when I wrote my book, okay? I wrote the, the Zen Master's Dance, and I had to do a manuscript, and I started writing, 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 writing. And when I was done, I said, okay, I'm done. And I looked at it, and the publisher said, okay, now you have to cut that in half because you just sent me two books. And it was true. It was huge. I, I, I just went on and on and on and on. You know how I do. Even these talks, you hear me. I'm going on and on and on. I cannot shut up. Well, the guy writing these uh, books about um, emptiness, they'd get on a roll and they'd go and they'd go and they'd go. So the Heart Sutra, Sutra finally took all these texts from India and boiled it down to a nutshell and put it on one page. But if you want to, the Diamond Sutra, these other sutras, they're basically the same story, sometimes the very same words, just much expanded. But they're still not, or are they, the words of the historical Buddha? Are they the words of the historical Buddha? Yeah, no. No, yes. No, yes. What do I mean by that? Okay, let's face it. 
most of the Mahayana sutras technically were written hundreds of years after the Buddhist time, not by the historical Buddha. Now I put a couple of asterisks next to that. First off, that's probably true for all the suttas and sutras, even the South Asian ones, because as you know, they were written long, put down on paper long after the time on, of Buddha. So it's hard to say that actually some of the Mahayana sutras are actually much older than some of the Theravadan suttas, as far as the copies we have. So technically, it's hard to say what is the word of the original Buddha. But look, face it, we're going to see it today. These are very fantastic stories with wondrous images, and they're not technically probably historical, okay? I don't think we have to be ashamed of this. I get sometimes, oh, the Mahayana Sutras, they're not what the Buddha said, they're not real. Well, let me ask you this. Is Windows 10 the same as Windows 95 or Windows the original, I, I, I was trying to think, what was before 95? It's so long ago, I can't remember, but I think it was just called Windows, right? All right. Maybe the guys who wrote that and developed that, a Windows 6, what was it? 7? So Windows 3. I don't know what, Sekishi, he keeps up on all these. Anyway, it's so long, It like our earliest teachings, lost in the histories of time. What was the original Windows? Now, maybe the guys who wrote that code are long gone. Maybe... Our present Windows 10 is not the same as the original Windows, but yes, it is. It's doing the same, running our operating system, but in some ways, I'm going to say it kind of better. You know, remember when you used to download things and it would take 35 minutes for one picture to come up on the screen? Like, oh, it's a photo. Oh, okay. You remember that? Now, you know, we don't even think about it anymore. So the Mahayana is an expression and a later development on the same theme as the earlier one that in some cases may have brought it even more to life. It is Windows 10 compared to Windows 3 or whatever. Uh, was lost in time back there. Okay? I'm not saying who is better. The South Asian traditions are better for people who find their joy there. And the Zen is good for people who find benefit in walking that path. And these Mahayana Sutras are precious. Does it matter that the authors were not the Buddha? No, because... How to say this, the guy who's now expressing and maybe channeling the teachings is speaking with the Buddha's voice, even though it's not the historical Buddha. And I, I, it's hard to say that, but, you know, when a, a conductor today plays Beethoven, and Beethoven's been dead for 300 years, I think, right? It's Beethoven, 
but it's expressed by the conductor. So maybe it is not the words of the Buddha, but if it has a precious teaching which brings the Buddhist teachings to life, it's the words of the Buddha. Uh, that's how you have to take that. In the old days, they used to say, oh, these Mahayana sutras, oh, they were left under a tree protected by a dragon and who was waiting there for, or actually a, a, a giant snake, who was waiting there for a thousand years. And then they, we discovered them, but they're actually the words of the Buddha. They just kept them hidden because the people back then, they couldn't handle this, you know. So now we rediscovered them. Baloney. Of course, they're not. They're not historically the words of the Buddha. They were written hundreds of years after the Buddha, but they speak truth if the teaching is valuable. And if you don't want that, well, can I tell you the American Constitution? Is it the words of the founding fathers? No, because did they have any concept of what we're dealing with today? No, right? Is the Bible the original words of Jesus? Who was Jesus, first off? What did he say? you got four versions in the Bible, plus everyone's interpretation. Is it a good interpretation, and does it speak truth? That's the best we can do with these sutras. And I'm going to tell you something. The Heart Truth Sutra is speaking a wondrous truth. Wondrous. And I believe it brings the original... Buddhist teachings to life because the point is liberation. And this is most definitely a path to realization and liberation that's available to all of us. You don't have to be a monk in some monastery in the Himalayas to get the treasure that is here. So, yes, this is the Buddha's teachings. And they're fantastic. We're going to see that today, especially his Mahayana teachings. I happen to be on the exercise bike every day. I, I like to brag. For an hour to an hour and a half, this is how I maintain this fantastic physique. And I'm watching everything Star Wars. Well, not everything. I tried to get into the animations and I did a little, the animations lost me, but anything, all the film, and now I'm watching The Mandalorian, there are high points and low points. Let me tell you something. I watched for the first time the two most recent Star Wars films. What is it, eight and nine? I forget, uh, the, Sky, the, the, the first Skywalker, that one. And fantastic. Okay, fantastic. Anyway, I'm getting off the topic here. But there, look at the characters there. There are characters there in any bar scene. They love bar scenes in Star Wars, which all the characters in the bar, they're just as fantastic here. We're going to talk about that in a second. Because it's a fable. It's supposed to be fantastic. It's not supposed to be our ordinary word. But that, again, does not mean it's not true. It's somebody trying to say, I'm trying to teach something fantastic, so let me create a fantastic scene. Folks, this was Star Wars or uh, Lord of the Rings back in the day, 
all this stuff, this wild stuff. But there's a teaching there about good and evil and all this and Star Wars to the force and, you know, don't go to the dark side. There's a lot of truth there. And there is a lot here, too. Okay, so what is our subject today? I see we're almost at the end of our talk time. Our subject today is the mysterious missing sections of the Heart Sutra. And what do I mean by that? Well, when we chant, as we did today, we usually start off with Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva. And Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva means canon Bodhisattva. Guanyin, canon. And that's where we start. And then we end at the, you know, gate, gata, para, gate, parasam, gate, bodhisattva. We'll get to there in a, a few months. And that's it. And suddenly, uh, if you go to uh, it's the Tibetan version, there's a whole bunch of stuff at the beginning and a whole other passage at the end that they chant. Why and where did that come from? We're going to read those. And I did a little research on this. Here's the thing. This teaching in the version we chant is given by canon. But technically, to be a sutra, it has to be the words of the Buddha. A Buddha is the only one fully licensed to speak a sutra. Now, we also have, for example, the Platform Sutra, which is spoken by, getting a little footnote here, Hui Nung, the Sixth Ancestor. Everyone know the Platform Sutra? Technically, also not a sutra. Some scholars say the title actually means something like the talk about a sutra, but it is not a sutra. On the other hand, other scholars point out that a Zen master or ancestor like Hui Nung is embodying the Buddha and speaks with the Buddha's voice. And therefore, if he is doing that, speaking with the Buddha's tongue, then it's a sutra. But it's one of the few works that is technically not spoken by the Buddha, but we call a sutra. It's not supposed to be, okay? Well, this is another example. The Heart Sutra, if it is not spoken by the Buddha, ain't supposed to be a sutra. Apparently, originally, it was considered a Durrani. Don't get your Durrani confused with your sutra. A Durrani is something that has great teachings and power that you chant, sometimes for the sound, you just to chant it. And it was, but it was not considered a sutra. But somebody said, oh, well, we're going to start. This is called the sutra. We better put the Buddha in there. So apparently the earliest appearance of this in, in China, as if I remember correctly, was about the 4th century. Don't quote me on that. I should have checked that before I came. But the part, the mysterious added part, appears a couple of hundred years later. Because apparently somebody said, okay, let's put the Buddha in there and make it a sutra. And it works the way many sutras actually do is the Buddha checks in and goes, okay, I'm here. Now I'm going to meditate. And you, my designatee, uh, agent and, and, and representative, you speak for me. And that's what we're going to see here. The Buddha shows up, goes into some meditation and says, 
please, Avalokitesvara, speak what I was going to say. And then at the end, the Buddha shows up and goes, yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. And therefore, Canon is now speaking with the Buddha's words, and it's a, a sutra, and our problem is solved. Okay? Now, this did not apparently become so popular in China, even though it, it was created in China, again, this longer version, but it's still popular in Tibet. So if you listen to uh, any uh, Tibetan speakers here, we dance uh, uh, that wonderful, uh, what is his name? I just looked it up last night. Uh, we'll do it again soon. The wonderful Tibetan uh, techno version of the Heart Sutra, and it starts off with this longer version, which is wonderful. We'll dance that maybe a couple of weeks. So let me put my glasses on. Let's get into the mysterious missing parts of the Heart Sutra. Thus have I heard, all sutras begin with this phrase, because they're supposed to be the words of the Buddha as heard uh, usually, uh, and then written down, right? Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One, the Buddha, was dwelling in Rajagriha. I'm sorry, Rajagriba, I should say, at Vulture Peak Mountain. Uh, a lot of the Mahayana Sutras, like the Lotus Sutra, are preached at this place called Vulture Peak. If you ask me, it's a terrible name <laughs> because it looks like a you know, Vulture Peak. It sounds like something, you know, the the uh, the Munsters, if anyone knows that American TV show, they would, you know, live in Vulture Drive. It sounds like the Vulture Peak, but some places translated as a beautiful Eagle Peak. It's Their name came apparently because there is a cliff there that's supposed to look like a vulture. Frankly, I went there when I went to India a few years ago. They took us to Vulture Peak on a bus. It was, it was a pilgrimage, but we took a bus most of the way and walked up the last few hundred meters. And uh, they said, there is the vulture. And I looked over. I didn't see it. They said, no, it looks just like a vulture. Okay. Anyway, it's Vulture Peak. And Vulture Peak is where all these Mahayana sutras take place. And it apparently is also mentioned in the earlier suttas. It was a real retreat center for the Buddha. He would go there and sometimes give talks. It's high on a cliff. And here's the thing. Bolcher Peak, as far as I saw, if I remember correctly, is about the size of this room I'm sitting in, the top. But somehow here... Millions and billions of bodhisattvas and gods and lay people, and they're all getting in there, okay, to hear the Buddha talk with room to spare. Apparently, it was before COVID, so no problem with social distancing because they're all crammed in there, all right, in a room, a space about this big, that is the top of Vulture Peak. Well, of course, it's figurative again. And you can say that all the Buddhas and ancestors, when we're giving this talk, are here right now. So they're here, too, you see, because they're in our heart, of course. So anyway, that's where the Buddha is always giving talks at Vulture Peak. Together with a great gathering of the Sangha of monks 
and a great gathering of the Sangha of Bodhisattvas. Little footnote, notice they separate monks and Bodhisattvas, which usually, if not always, includes lay people, which is means that this is not only for monks, it's for Bodhisattvas, which can be any of us, all of us. So we're there too, okay? We are all there too. At that time, the Blessed One entered the Samadhi that expresses the Dharma called profound illumination, profound illumination Samadhi. So the Buddha goes and begins meditating. What is profound illumination Samadhi? Well, it's some kind of Samadhi. He's sitting Zazen in which he encounters profound illumination. I think our Zazen encounters profound illumination. So we also sit profound illumination, Samadhi. I will say this about Samadhis though. If you read these uh, old uh, books with uh, 10,000, 20,000 or 200,000 kanji, sometimes they have lists of the different kinds of samadhi. You've got your profound illumination samadhi, your very profound illumination, your safari, your uh, blue colored illumination, it goes on. I think it was a little like wine tasting. People would sit, you know, the guy takes a wine, which is basically fermented grape juice and they taste it and they go, ah, the lavender of my grandmother's underwear drawer with a touch of wooden box and the strawberries. Oh, some profound illumination and ah, cat box like that. So he, you know, they, they do this because they, I think when the, the old meditators were sitting there and they were having their sittings, they would go, Oh, today my Samadhi, this is the Samadhi of lavender in my grandmother's, lingerie drawer, like that. And they would describe these experiences. So the words are just very expressive, but it means they're sitting there always with some the light, some peace, some wholeness. He's sitting some kind of zazen of profound illumination. And so do we. What more do you need to know? Okay. And at that same time, Avalokitesvara, and then we continue from there. So it's a way for the Buddha to say, I'm present, so this is actually my talk. Avalokitesvara, I'm meditating here, but you speak for me. The profound illumination. That's why the mysterious words are there. And then we jump to the end. There's a character we will encounter in the Heart Sutra in the, in the days to come, Shariputra. Shariputra is the guy who gets lectured to by Avalokitesvara because Shariputra is, uh, how should we say, his name translates to Mr. Know-it-all. Smarty pants. Hey, he's the guy who's a little too intellectual perhaps and is set straight by Avalokitesvara. We're going to meet him Later. That's the part, you know, oh, Shadi Putra. That's him, Shadi Putra. Uh, 
Shariputra, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva. Oh, so we get Gate Gate Bodhiswaha. Thus, Shariputra, the Bodhi Mahasattva, should train in this profound Prajna Paramita, perfection of wisdom. Okay? Talk is finished. So, then the Blessed One arose from that Samadhi and praised noble Avalokitesvara. Good job, Canon. Well done. That's exactly what I would have said. It's not here, but that's, that's what it's saying. He praised noble Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva. Bodhisattva Mahasattva means just a, a great guy, Bodhisattva, great man, Bodhisattva. We'll, come, we'll talk about that next time. The Buddha said, good, 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 well done. Oh, son of noble family. They love that expression. I guess in the old days, in the, in the caste system, traditional, if you speak well, you're a, you're a man of good character, it's like saying. You're a son of noble family. Uh, well done. You're a good guy, like that. Son of noble family. Thus it is, oh, son of noble family. Thus it is. One should practice the profound Prajnaparamita just as you have taught, and all the Tathagatas, all the Buddhas, there's not just one in the Mahayana, lots and lots of Buddhas, all the Tathagatas, we'll talk about what Tathagata means, all the Buddhas will rejoice. And when the Blessed One had said this, Venerable, Venerable Shariputra and Noble Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, the whole assembly and the world with its gods and humans and azures and gandavas. What's that? Okay, you're on Vulture Peak in the room this size, and you got the whole assembly, all the bodhisattvas, plus all the gods and as humans and azures and gandavas. Here's what happened. When Buddhism came to a place, there was already other religions there with their gods. Uh, Hinduism, you know, Brahmanism, lots of Indian gods. Then it came to China, more gods. Came to Japan and met Shinto, more gods. And uh, the way to deal with this was to incorporate all these local gods into the pantheon and welcome them in. These are Indian gods from traditional Indian religions. And it, they wanted to bring other Indian people in. So we said, we're not going to reject your religion. We're going to bring it in. In Shinto here in Japan, all the Shinto gods are actually interpreted traditionally as other faces of Buddha and the Bodhisattvas. They brought them in. Many of the... Uh, figures we see in Buddhism were actually ancient Indian gods from Indian religion that had nothing to do with Buddhism. We brought them in. In modern Hinduism, Hinduism has Buddha the other way. The Hindus, if you go to a Hindu temple, they sometimes have a statue of Buddha saying, Buddha, I believe, is a, an avatar of Vishnu. It depends, you know, they would fight a little who is on the top, okay? So, 
your God is still down here, right? And Buddha is up here, but your God, is, we welcome it in as an expression of our belief. So Buddha in Hinduism is Vishnu's here and Buddha is just one face of Vishnu. Okay, it goes the other way. But anyway, so who are these? We got your gods. We got your Azuras. Azuras, I'm going to run along here. I'm going to make this quick. Azuras, we always had trouble incorporating these guys because they're gods, but they're bad gods. So because they're gods in Buddhism, you know, usually the God, okay, where humans are down here, we're going to put the gods up here and hell and hungry ghosts and all the troublemakers are down here, right? Hell, hungry ghosts with the greed and the anger and the ignorance. And then the gods who are living in their pleasure palaces, they're up here and humans are in the middle. But the Azuras are bad gods. They're greedy, violent gods who fight with all the other gods. So there's a debate in Buddhism. When we take the Azuras, we borrow them from the Indian religion. Do we stick them down there? because they're greedy and violent or, but they're gods. Do we put them up here? This was never answered well, but they're basically up here, even though they fight with all the other gods because they're, they're kind of, how to say, uh, they're gods, but uh, they got some issues. They're gods with issues. Okay. So that's the Azuras. Okay, and then we got the Gandharvas, which were also, uh, as I understand, tree spirits who loved music. And um, so the Gandharvas are there, and there's a whole list of all kinds of things, Nargas, which are dragon gods, and all these. Invite them all in. We're having a party here on Vulture Peak, because what is this? I'm going to end with another Star Wars reference. So the gods, the humans, the Azuras, and Gandavas rejoiced and praised the words of the Blessed One. This is the scene. I believe it is from, uh, is it Revenge of the Jedi? I'm getting, I watched all these movies the last two months, and I've got them all confused in my head. The one with the little teddy bear people. Who are they? Jakudan, who are they? What is the, the little teddy bear people? They're, they're Ewoks. And, yeah, and it's from Revenge of the Jedi. <laughs> and what are they called? Ewoks. Oh, the Ewoks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They blow up the Death Star for the second or third time. They keep blowing up the Death Star and they rebuild it. They blow up the Death Star. Anyway, they blow up the Death Star and they have a party. You know, the Ewok party, right? Okay. They're having a party. It was a great teaching. So everybody's having a party. That's what this is. This is the scene of the Ewoks dancing and celebrating at the end of... Uh, that's that, and uh, because it was such a great teaching by Canon, they put that there to close it out. Therefore, the mystery of the missing parts of the Heart Sutra is solved. And that's enough for today. Any questions? <laughs> I just want to clarify it's Return of the Jedi, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes. In Star Wars and Buddhism, you must quote the correct sutra. Sekshi. I had a, just a really quick observation in the uh, sort of talking about the syncretic nature of, you know, religions of incorporating uh, other traditions into yours that the Buddha is also a Catholic saint. 
right? It's like Barlam and Jehoshaphat, maybe. I don't. I'm I'm butchering it, but there is the Buddha is a saint in Catholicism. Um, and then, of course, uh, I don't know much about it. You uh, you could probably speak more to it, but I know that um, when Catholicism came to Japan and then was uh, eventually banned by the uh, the Tokugawa like shogunate. Right, like, aren't there aren't there um, Avalokiteshvaras who are really like Virgin Marys? Like, I've seen pictures of statuary that are. Yeah, that I have one actually. All right, what I suspect is one. They had to hide the Christians, so they right. would take Canon, you know, the statue of Canon, because it is so similar to the Virgin Mary, and they would put it on their altar, saying, "Oh, it's Canon. We're good Buddhists." But it was really the Virgin Mary, and you can tell because they would put a secret cross in the statue somewhere. But Canon's holding a child, right? Right. We see that. Uh, I actually have statues here of Jesus holding a child. Well, you could actually uh, hide your Christianity that way. So that's what they did. But yeah, you know, good things are faces of other good things. I, I'm not one to say that that uh, there's a lot of similarity between Canon and and the Virgin Mary. When I find myself in times of trouble, Canon Bodhisattva comes to me. Yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Uh, any any other uh, questions, points, comments, complaints? Complaints are fine. No? Okay, well, we will continue next time with Return of the Bodhisattva. Or the Z Oh, wait a second. Or Canon's Revenge. No, Canon Strikes Back. Whatever. We'll, uh, would, you, uh, would you take us out? Thank you for joining us for the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.